text this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read verses 8 through 12, but we're going to focus mainly on on verses 10 through 12. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. Give ear to the word of God. It says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, we've spent a little bit of time kind of unpacking Verses 8 through 12, Uh, I think I've mentioned a couple times my original plan was to, you know, I like to cover whole passages at one time and kind of give, keep the, uh, not lose the forest for the trees. Uh, But as I've been going through and working uh, through this passage, it seemed uh, right to me to kind of slow down and and unpack it a bit at a time. And so for for that, I thought uh, we'll give a little bit of a, a brief review of what we've gone through in this passage so far. Here, Paul tells Timothy in verse 8, He exhorts him, he admonishes him not to be ashamed of the gospel or of himself, of Paul, but to join with Paul in suffering for the gospel's sake. I mentioned before that verse 8 is kind of the theme of the whole epistle. The the, the idea of not being ashamed of the gospel, but to the point of being willing to suffer for it, is really the, the heart and soul of what Paul's encouraging Timothy to do. In some ways, you could say, he's not going to be an apostle, but you could say in some ways, Paul is kind of passing the baton or passing the torch onto Timothy. Paul knows, as we're going to see as we get later on into this book, Paul knows that his end in this earthly life was coming to an end, that he was going to be uh, ushered into glory soon by his martyrdom. And so he wants to encourage Timothy, who's going to know that that happens, not to uh, lose heart, but to continue on in ministering the gospel faithfully. Paul spends a lot of the rest of this letter, this brief letter to Timothy, teaching us, what such boldness and faithfulness in ministering the gospel looks like. It entails just a few things I'll highlight real quickly, but it includes such things as in verse 13 when Paul tells Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words that he heard from Paul. So the things that that Timothy heard Paul preaching and teaching in public, he gave him a pattern to hold to and to follow. He wants him to continue on in that same pattern. Uh, He tells him also to entrust that same doctrine that he had heard Paul preach. uh, Verse 2 of chapter 2, to entrust that, he says, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there's a multiplication factor in faithful gospel ministry. It's not meant to be just one person. You know, that's why, you know, in some ways, when you look at churches that are kind of built around a a personality of sorts, they're built on, on one man. Uh, very often it's not really the right biblical model. It's, it's meant to be a multiplication of that ministry and, and passing it on to others that they might take that, that and run with it. And then not, not the last thing, but last thing we'll mention this morning in, in chapter 4, verse 2, it, it might seem obvious to us, but Paul admonishes Timothy with great seriousness and gravity to preach the word. 
he actually enjoins him to do that uh, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the, the living and the dead, to preach the word. Of all the things Timothy could do, that's the main thing that Paul would have him to do uh, in, in such a way that shows he is not ashamed of the gospel or the word of God and is willing to suffer for it because Timothy would know by Paul's example if he was to preach God's word faithfully, he was going to suffer in some ways for it. So Lord willing, as we go through the rest of the book in the weeks and months to come, we'll kind of go through each one of those things as they come up in the text. But here in our text in verses 10 through 12, Paul essentially kind of starts uh, before he gets to the what, Paul gets to the why and the how of faithful gospel ministry. He wants to give Timothy and us, uh, you could say, sort of the right biblical motivation and encouragement for doing these things. How is it that Timothy or any of us would be able or could possibly be able to not be ashamed of the gospel and to, to such a degree that we're willing to suffer for it? That's what he's going to give uh, Timothy briefly in our text this morning. Um, ask yourself this. What is it that can make a person willing and able to suffer for the sake of the gospel. There's many different ways that suffering may come about, but what kind of what is it that can make somebody willing to do something as that such as that? And to go further than that, what is it what is it that can make a man willing to lay down his life for the sake of the name of Christ, as Paul was going to do shortly, as we read later on in this text, in this book? What kind of thing can make somebody willing to do that? I can remember, uh, this isn't the same kind of thing, but I remember years and years ago, um, my mom had been married a second time, and I'll call him my stepfather for respect's sake, but he didn't raise me or anything, but um, I was in the Navy, and I wanted to, you'll probably laugh at this because I'm afraid of heights, but I had thought about uh, going out from the enlisted ranks and joining a, a program to become an officer and to even think about becoming a pilot. I was working at Top Gun, and so my head was filled with all kinds of stupid ideas. Uh, and so I had been accepted in the program, but they told me I had to wait till the next year to come around. Well, in that time, of, that space of time, after I was accepted into that program, I was very excited about it. I wanted to be an officer. I thought about making the Navy my career. God changed my plans. He changed my heart and made me want to... I didn't know I was going to be doing this, but he gave me the desire in some way to be a minister of the gospel. I thought I'd be a youth pastor, and whatnot, but my stepfather heard about this and thought this was the weirdest idea he'd ever heard. And he couldn't, he couldn't comprehend how somebody would possibly give up a career and the status and all that of, of an, a naval officer to want to go to seminary and be a poor pastor and all these things. Uh, that's what he couldn't get his mind wrapped around. Well, that's a small, small you know, thing compared to what Paul's talking about here. Paul's saying not just giving up a lucrative so-called career, but, but suffering, actual physical at times, you know, imprisonment, beatings. Read the list of things that Paul endured. That's what Timothy knew Paul was talking about. That doesn't make any sense to the world, does it? it if the gospel doesn't, but that kind of thing really doesn't make sense to the world. Why would you endure suffering for something like that? That's what Paul wants to give and equip Timothy with, the right encouragement for that thing that kind of a thing uh, now. So back in verse 9 last Sunday or two Sundays ago, we looked together there and we saw the first thing that Paul gives Timothy as an encouragement to endure suffering for the gospel was the sovereign grace of God in, in their salvation and calling in Jesus Christ. Well, here in verse 10, Paul goes on and kind of expands on that a little bit in more detail about that same grace and salvation that we've only uh, in Christ he reminds us that this grace and salvation, uh, verse 10, were given to us, quote, 
in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So before time, the grace of salvation was given to his people. We were called, we were elected and chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, Paul says elsewhere. He says, but have now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ, Jesus Christ. So God gave us, in some sense, grace and salvation from all eternity, before we were ever created, but in time he made that manifest in sending Christ his Son uh, to die for our sins and to rise again. And he reminds us that the blessings and results of the work of Christ in his cross and resurrection, that, that, that they include things like, he says, Christ has abolished death. What are the results of for our sake, what are the results and blessings that God gives us in Christ? Through Christ's death and resurrection, the first of those is that he has abolished or destroyed death, and then Paul says in verse 10, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's the, the saying, the rubber meets the road. You know, That's the practical application or the result of what Christ has done for us and our belief in the, in the gospel. So, you know, in a sense, it's not just that that's the message of the gospel, but that truth of the message of the gospel is also the source of strength and motivation for faithfulness in the gospel ministry in the face of persecution. So the gospel is both the message and the motivation for the preacher to remain faithful. And why is that? Because even if you face suffering and persecution and even, even martyrdom, as Paul would do, uh, what, is, what is Christ's work? What has it done for us? It's abolished death for his people. It has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the martyrdom, the death even at the hands of the unbelieving, the wicked and the unbelieving is not the end of the story. It's not the end of, of God's people and it's not the end of the message of the gospel. So it seems fitting, I thought, on this Sunday after Easter, not that it was my plan, that after we looked last Sunday at the truth of Christ's death and resurrection, uh, that we'd follow that up by looking at a passage of Scripture here where Paul shows us the blessed results and implications of Christ's cross and resurrection for all of us who believe in Christ. So it's, it's not a bad thing for us to spend a week last Sunday thinking about the resurrection and this week kind of reminding ourselves of it and what does it mean for us? What does the cross and resurrection of Christ mean for you if you're a believer in Christ? It means that for you, death has been abolished. It means that Christ has brought us life and immortality uh, to light in him. So I want to look at a few things from our text briefly. The first thing is that Paul turns our attention to in verse 10 is the manifestation of the grace of God in the coming of Christ. So the manifestation of the grace of God in Christ, he says, the grace of God was given to us in Christ, what, verse 9, before the ages began, but he says, verse 10, now it has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, what does he mean by this? What does that mean that God gave us grace and salvation before the ages began, before time, but then he has made it manifested, he has shown it to us and revealed it to us in the coming of Christ? It's kind of like what, what John says in the first chapter of John's Gospel, John 1, 16 through 18, he says this. John writes, for, for from his fullness, that's Christ's fullness, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, that's Christ, 
He has made him known. Now, some take this text, I think, and twist it around and misunderstand it in, 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 a, in a number of ways. Um, it's not that there was no grace and truth in the Old Testament age. That is not what John is saying. It's not what the scriptures teach. We should not have a radical division in our minds and hearts uh, thinking of the Old Testament as no grace and law and burdens and, you know, burdens on our backs. And then the New Testament is all grace and light. That's not what John is saying. Uh, what does he say? He calls it grace upon grace. That's, that's key there. Grace upon grace. It's like grace piled on top of other grace. Um, so when he says that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, he's magnifying the grace and truth that we have in the age of the New Testament with Christ. He's not minimizing or saying there was no grace in the Old Testament. It wasn't that there was no grace and truth revealed in the Old Testament, far from it, but the grace of God that we see in the gospel of Christ now that was foreshadowed and, and prophesied of throughout the Old Testament. What happened now is it's been revealed in all of its fullness. It's been revealed in all of its fullness. There's no more types, no more shadows. Uh, God has revealed the substance of the gospel, whereas before it was mostly types and shadows and prophecy. The Apostle Peter says much the same thing. He talks about the great privilege that we now enjoy in the gospel age, where the fullness of Christ and the gospel has been made known. First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, Peter writes this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about what it is, the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Think about the privilege. We take it for granted, and, and you know, I, I think we probably all do. I know I do. Maybe you do as well. Think about the implications of what Peter is saying there. He's saying that the prophets themselves, they, pick, pick a prophet, you know, David, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, any of them, Moses himself, they prophesied about Christ and the grace that was to come to you and I in the coming of Christ, and they didn't get it all. They knew they were ministering something not that they weren't fully knowing the full picture of at the time, but that would be made known later that we now take for granted. And he says, even the angels long to look into these things. And yet we have it plain and simple in the scriptures for us with the coming of Christ and the gospel accounts. So we who believe in Christ in our day have the great privilege of preaching the gospel uh, and, and live, you know, we live and serve in an age uh, serve Christ in an age uh, that those who went before us, before Christ's coming, could only kind of see, the scripture uses the, the idea of seeing in a mirror or a glass darkly, kind of a blurry. You know, we, we were watching a TV yesterday, a baseball game, and uh, the burden and the, the suffering that we endure, the HD wasn't working. And so we were like, oh, look how blurry the picture is. How can we endure such suffering in our age? You know, we couldn't read the score. I don't know if it was, I said, maybe the players are actually just blurry, and that's what they look like in real life. Um, you know, well, that, that, you know we, we see things, they saw things only as in a mirror darkly. They weren't in HD, I guess. 
they could hardly imagine the fullness of revelation of the grace of God that was to come in the coming of Christ that we now take for granted. They really looked into this and wanted to know, and yet we just get to know um, how privileged are we. The prophets who went before us throughout the Old Testament, they suffered and many of them laid down their lives to bear witness to the grace of God which had been revealed in far less fullness uh, in their day, and yet shall we who live and serve Christ in such a privileged age as ours be willing to do so much less? The book of Hebrews talks about prophets being sawn in half. You know, Jesus told the people and the scribes and Pharisees, you know, basically, which of the prophets didn't you kill? The implication is basically all of them. They resisted them at every turn and they killed so many of them. Uh, and they did that with far less being revealed to them in fullness than we have now in the completion of the scriptures and the coming of Christ. And how was the grace of God and our salvation manifested in all its fullness? In what way was that the case? Paul says that it was manifested, verse 10, through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. At Christ's coming, his incarnation, his death, and resurrection. All that Jesus is and all that he did that is the appearing, uh, the manifestation of the grace of God in all of its fullness to us. So the Lord Jesus Christ, all that he is, all that he did for our salvation from sin, that is the full manifestation of the grace of God toward us. There's no, there's no next thing other than the return of Christ uh, for God to reveal to us. It's all the substance of all the Old Testament is found in Christ himself and all that he did for our salvation. So the second thing that Paul points our attention to in verse 10 that is that is that Christ has destroyed death. Not only has he manifested the grace of God in full, but he has destroyed or abolished death. Look at verse 10 again. He says, "And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel." This is part of Christ's work on our behalf in the cross and resurrection that he has now abolished death or destroyed it for all those who are in him by faith. Now, it's not that death doesn't exist. We know better than that. We know that's not the case. It's not that believers don't die physically. We all know that is not the case. Uh, those who are around when Christ returns will skip that step, but all the rest of us will die as those before us have done. Uh, but for those who are us who are in Christ, Death has now, the scripture says, lost its sting. We may still be kind of fearful of it because, you know, no one, what's the old saying, you know, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Uh, we're all sort of afraid of it in some ways, but death has lost its sting if you're a believer in Christ. Whether you know it or not, death is one of its things that has been conquered by the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, the conquering of death is one of the great blessings of the gospel for all his people, for all who believe. Hebrews chapter 2 puts it this way, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, the writer of Hebrews. We don't know who that was. Some think it's Paul, but we don't know. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that's Christ, he himself likewise partook of these same things, that through death, through his death, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and here it is, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus died to save us from death, and he even died to free us from the fear of death. What other man-made religion, that's what they, all the rest of them are, 
can possibly promise you that? Jesus removes any cause for fear of death among us who believe. And those who, are, uh, who have the fear of death, it says, are subject to lifelong slavery. It's a slavery throughout their entire life, the fear of death. They, you know, people that don't know Christ, so even some of those who do, they spend most of their time trying to ignore death. They spend most of their time trying to distract themselves from the idea and the truth of death. They try to, you know, years ago I was at a funeral for a family member and I was chatting with the, uh, the man who ran the funeral home. And I, you know, I asked him, you know, do people have far less funerals these days? When I was a kid, everybody had funerals and memorial services. And it seems like it's less and less the case now. And I think part of that is people just want to pretend it isn't going to happen. They want to pretend that death is not, you know, in their future. And so we, we entertain ourselves, we amuse ourselves and find all kinds of ways to not think about it. And he, he remarked that it's far less common you know, he, he didn't say it in a crass way, but like business wasn't going very well. People weren't doing these things. And a lot of it was they just want to avoid the topic altogether. Whereas for believers, death has no sting. It has no fear. Only the believer in Jesus Christ can live confidently in the face of death. And so it's no accident that Paul brings this up here in the context of exhorting Timothy to suffer for the gospel. It's not a coincidence or an accident that Paul says this brief phrase uh, here in verse 10 when he tells Timothy to be willing to suffer for the gospel that he brings up that Christ has abolished death for his people. John Stott writes the following. He says, in order to appreciate the full force of this Christian affirmation that Christ has abolished death, we need to call to mind who it is who is making it. Who is this who writes so confidently about life and death about the abolition of death and the revelation of life. It is the one who is facing the prospect of imminent death himself. Any day now, he, that's Paul, any day now he expects to receive the death sentence. Already the final summons is ringing in his ears. Already he can see in his imagination the flash of the executioner's sword. Paul has to have thought about these things. He knows what kind of death he's going to die. And yet, Stott says, in the very presence of death, he can shout aloud, Christ has abolished death. This is faith triumphant. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 23? Yea, though I walk through what? The valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, your staff they comfort me. Same, same faith talked about in the Old Testament by David, as is talked about by Paul here in our text. And you know, In Paul's case, talk about putting your money where your mouth is, or your faith where your mouth is. You know, I, as a preacher, I can stand up here all morning, I won't, and, and talk about suffering for Christ and being willing to lay down your life for the gospel. I don't expect to have to do that necessarily. I don't know. Uh, it doesn't seem like that happens very often in our country, but who knows what could happen. Paul knew exactly what was going to happen, and he still said it. These weren't empty words. This was not some kind of weird, vain, hypothetical for Paul. Uh, he really believed and understood the truth of the gospel, and he understood and believed what it meant for himself, that he was able to face the threat of certain death and persecution because he really did. He didn't just preach the gospel. He really believed the gospel. He really understood the truth and the ramifications of the gospel for every believer. And as he tells us in verse 12, it wasn't just that he knew some facts. 
He knew Christ. He knew the one whom he had believed and believed that he was able to, to, to keep that which he had entrusted to him. The truth of the gospel that Christ our Savior has abolished death for his people through his death and resurrection was not just theoretical or hypothetical to Paul. Because if Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf, if you're a believer, death has been abolished for you. It is no longer to be feared. Death no longer has the victory or the last word over us. Our Savior, in John 11, what does he call himself? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 11:25. Paul knew that. Paul preached that. And Paul, most importantly, believed that. And I trust that you do as well. Well, last but not least, Paul kind of gives us the flip side of abolishing death, destroying death. He also has brought life, verse 10, and immortality to life. You know, there, there's no abolishing death unless it brings with it the promise of life. You know, some of the world's religions, they, the end of it, I, I never understood the appeal of it. The Eastern religions, things like that, the New Age, uh, what, they're, what is the end for those who believe in that religion, according to that religion. It's a false religion. Nothingness. You just kind of get absorbed into the one, into the universe. And you really know more. You're, you sort of exist, but you really don't. The goal is basically to cease to exist. That's not Now, it's good news compared to eternity and hell, I suppose, but it's not heaven. And it certainly isn't life and light being, life and immortality being brought to life. That's a strange promise. I don't know how that works going door to door. How would you like to not exist anymore? <laughs> that's, that's the goal, to not exist. Um, that's, that's, that's no hope. That is no gospel. That is no good, good news. But there's no abolishing of death unless it brings with it the promise of life. Now, Paul is not saying that there was no promise of life and immortality before Christ came. Again, these things existed before they were brought to full light in the coming of Christ. In his commentary on the pastoral epistles, Patrick Fairbairn notes the Greek word that Paul uses here for bringing to light means, he says, not for the first time to disclose as if it was something new, but to bring into the clearest light what had hitherto lain in comparative obscurity. It's not that it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. It certainly was. But now it's been revealed in its full flower for everyone who believes to see Christ has now in his coming death and resurrection, he has brought life, not only to abolish death, but he's brought life to light, to its clearest and fullest light. What kind of life has Christ come to bring to light for all who believe? He has come to bring abundant life. John 10.10, 10, the Lord Jesus Christ says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly outside of Christ we don't have we really don't have life at all we don't have real life at all outside of Christ outside of Christ we are dead the Bible says Ephesians 2 1 we are dead in our trespasses and sins we're like zombies we walk around we live we live life we eat we do our thing but we really don't really have life at all we're dead to God we're dead in our sins we are spiritually dead even while we are alive in this life. But in Christ, we who were dead in our sins and trespasses were made alive in him. Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 5, Paul says this. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Dead in sin, that's us outside of Christ. But what has God done if you're in Christ? He's made you alive together with Christ and saved you by grace. Every, every sinner who ever believes was dead in sin until God saved them and raised them up with Christ and made them alive together with him. And not only that, Christ has given us new spiritual life, he says, from the dead in that passage. So new spiritual life, abundant life, and last but not least, and not unrelated to that, he gives us eternal life. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, maybe. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should what? Not perish, but have eternal life. Same thing Paul is saying in our text. No perishing, but eternal life. Jesus has, has abolished death and perishing for those who believe and gives us eternal life. Whoever believes in Christ, trusting in him alone for salvation, shall not perish because Christ has abolished death, but rather have eternal life. And again, what is eternal life? It's not just existing eternally. You could say even, even the condemned, even those who are dead in sins and, and will spend an eternity in hell, they will exist. They don't cease to exist, but they don't live. Real life is only with God in Christ. Eternal life is not just existing forever in some state, but it's living forever with God in a right relationship with God and Christ our Savior, who is himself the life. Jesus, what does he call himself? I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. Jesus himself is life. In fact, knowing God, John 17, 3, is sort of John's definition of eternal life or Jesus' definition of eternal life. This, uh, what is eternal life? It is they may know you, the one true and living God, and Jesus Christ who you, whom you have sent. Knowing God is the essence of eternal life. Now, Paul brief, briefly reminds Timothy that these, things, uh, that these things are the things that have been brought to light, their fullest light, with the coming of Christ his cross, and resurrection. Now, all of this is why Paul can say in a different, different book, we read this last Lord's Day, last Sunday over Easter, in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 58, Paul says this, much saying the same thing as he says here, but in different words. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on, what, here it is again, immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, O death. Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's because of the sure hope of the gospel and the victory that Christ gives us over death itself that we can be, as he tells us to do in verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Why? Because Christ has conquered death for us, for all who believe. That's, that's the same thing Paul has in mind, I believe, in verses 11 and 12 of our text. He says, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. For what? The gospel. 
and the fact that Christ had abolished death and brought life and, light and immortality to life. He says, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. He suffered mainly for one reason, because Christ had appointed him a preacher, apostle, and teacher of the gospel of Christ and eternal life. He says, That's, which is why I suffer as I do, but he says, here's that word again, but I am not ashamed. Even with death staring him in the face, I'm not ashamed. Why? For I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard unto that day what has been entrusted to me. He knew Christ and knew Christ could guard and protect that which had been trusted to him, even, even against death itself. Paul was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher for the gospel and the sure hope uh, that for every believer Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through it. That's why he suffered as he did, but he was not ashamed. And why was he not ashamed? Because he knew whom he had believed. The gospel was not some you know, subjective and abstract set of facts. The gospel is about a person. It's about Christ. He didn't just know the facts of the gospel, although he did know that and preach that. He knew Christ, which is the point of knowing and believing in him in the gospel. And he was convinced, knowing Christ, that Christ was able to guard until that day what had been entrusted to him. That's why Paul abounded in the work of the Lord, and that's why he exhorts Timothy and us to do the same. A life spent serving Christ in his gospel is never a wasted life. A life cut short for the sake of Christ, as Paul's was, humanly speaking, was not a wasted life or wasted effort. Why not? Because of the promise of eternal life in Christ. You know, when you read sometime the book of Acts, I, when, I, when I was preaching through that book, when I first came up here, not too long after I first came up here, me and my family, I preached through the book of Acts, and you got to that chapter where Stephen was stoned and killed and martyred. Like, I'd read it before, but I, when you preach through a book, you have to slow down and study through it and let it kind of hit you. And I remember thinking, what a waste. Because it, it paints this picture of Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He gives this wonderful sermon uh, to a hostile audience who ends up killing him. It's like a survey of the entire Old Testament and of their unbelief calling them to repentance. He sees Christ as he's being killed, standing at the right hand of God, right? And he's cut short. And you think, oh, what, he, what, what could God have done through, through Stephen if that hadn't happened? What a waste. Was it a waste? You know, Stephen could have said, hey, wait a minute. You know, God just put me in this office as a, as a deacon, we think. Uh, God has given me the ability to speak. I could do a lot more if I don't die. Maybe I should tone this down. Maybe I should you know, kind of cool my jets a little bit. And, uh, you know, I could, I'll, I'll find out who here in the audience is a little more receptive, and I'll talk to them on the side, and then I'll live longer and I'll get to preach more, and God, God has to be happier with that. And yet everything else that follows in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul's conversion, uh, to say the least, happened due to his martyrdom. You could say that without Stephen's martyrdom, God could have done whatever he wanted, but God used the martyrdom of Stephen his life, quote-unquote, cut short to, to accomplish everything else that happened in the book of Acts. Every epistle that we read this morning from the Apostle Paul, you can trace back in some ways to Stephen's martyrdom. Did, was his life wasted? No. 
Was his testimony cut short? No. God used it even through, even through death, and, he, and Paul knew he would do the same uh, for him. It's because Christ our Savior has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel that Paul and Timothy and you and I can be unashamed of the gospel and share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's why believers in all times and places, even our own day, must not be ashamed of the gospel, even if it brings suffering. And it's easy to say this in the moment now, even if it costs us our lives somehow. God is able to take care of even that. The Lord Jesus Christ has always made his truth triumph through his church, even when his church was persecuted. He even uses the persecution of the wicked against his church to make the gospel spread and bear fruit. It's been said by an early church father that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, I I always picture it like, you know, we don't really have a lot of dandelions out here, but, you know, the dandelions, when they get all puffy, and when you're a kid, you don't think about these things, and you blow them, and, oh, look... And if when you're an adult, you have to mow the lawn, and you have to take care of the lawn. You know, no, no, no. You know, that, it, that's the devil persecuting the church. He, he blows on it thinking, I'm going to destroy this thing. And all he does is have a yard full of dandelions. That, that's what happens with the gospel in a much greater sense. The more the world persecutes, the more God uses it to spread the gospel and advance it and make it bear much fruit. Paul's imprisonment could not chain the gospel. He says as much in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, he's changed, but not the gospel. The gospel's not bound. Paul wrote the book of Philippians, also from prison. In Philippians 1.12, he says, what has happened to me, talking about his imprisonment, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It didn't minimize it. It didn't hinder it. It didn't chain it. It actually made it go further because Christ is really alive at the right hand of God and is able to make that happen. Even Paul's martyrdom could not silence the gospel because Christ, as he says, was able to guard until that day what he had entrusted to him. May the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, for those of us who believe, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light, may he work in us, you and I, by his spirit, what is pleasing in his sight, that you and I might not be ashamed of his gospel, but faithfully bear witness of him to those around us, and may he make us willing to suffer for the gospel if need be, uh, so that his name might be glorified in us, and that the lost may hear and believe in him unto life eternal. Amen. Let's, Let's pray.